0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Reality Bites on the theme of the real. Helen, start us off.
1: Okay. This is potentially a little bit long as I didn't have that much time to edit it, but uh, I will give it a go. Capitalist realism is, in the words of Mark Fisher, the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. Despite and perhaps because of analytical approaches and attempts to formulate something new, capitalism appears to remain inherent, like some kind of all-consuming primordial goo in which we always end up finding ourselves knee-deep. Capitalism insists in the film, despite the desire of the characters to drop out, to hang out, and to really do nothing. In terms of the grunge movement itself, this notion was very much born within its self-concept, Kurt Cobain, for instance, finds no remedy other than to kill himself, and the title of the film, even though my research tells me that it's by accident, suggests an awareness that that the capitalist real insists, even when we try to step outside of it. Reality Bites are the documentary morsels that Lelaine films of her friends. Reality Bites, when her attitude costs her her job, when she racks up hundreds of dollars in phone bills, when she is threatened with eviction even by her own housemates. The trouble is, of course, that even a self-conscious grunge attitude is not enough to escape the market system. It doesn't really address capitalism on the level at which capitalism functions and has an almost umbilical rather than creatively radical relationship to it. Though small scale, this was a studio film and it does at times feel like a somewhat inauthentic shoehorning of a potentially interesting set of ideas into a conventional romantic comedy narrative with the aim of selling that attitude back to a disenchanted audience. The narrative can also feel like a platter in service of corporate product. Lelena with her Diet Cokes, Vicky is a manager at The Gap, and Troy waving a tube of Pringles suspiciously close to the camera during the iconic gas station scene. One isn't a capitalist, though, just because one wears one is a member of the system who wears a suit. One is so because of one's relationship to lack. If one believes that one can medicate one's lack with fulfilment be that with a commodity or by finding the right attitude to life or by dropping out entirely, one is still operating within the same ideological paradigm of capital, the ideology of promise. The issue is perhaps that that when we address capitalism, we need a psychoanalytic rather than a merely analytic approach. The Lacanian real is a no thing, that which is linked to yet not caught within the symbolic and imaginary orders. It is an excess that is generated by our grasp of the world, yet not contained by it. It is an antagonism that that inexorably cuts across reality. Similarly, for Hegel, contradiction is an inexorable antagonism. Whichever way we order our society, contradiction haunts us, contradiction bites. For the Hegelian Marx, surplus value is the contradiction of capital, the crack of the real that the ideology of commodity fetishism is used as a cloak to shroud. The political project of psychoanalysis, Hegel and Marx, is to expose the contradiction, for therein lies the quote-unquote truth of a given order, the emancipatory potential, the possibility of something new. Film is a unique medium that draws out more than any other the contradiction of human subjectivity, lack. Lack is a form of subjectival real, a knot from which desire stems. Film is a type of desire machine, an overwrought medium depicting gold-orientated narratives that provide the potential of an emancipatory undercutting of that very desire. The riven narrative form presents a logical framework, but it never is. Contradiction will always undercut it. The residue of contradiction can either be incorporated into the narrative itself through the deliberate exposure of the fallacy of fantasy, or must be papered over by ideology. In this way, sometimes the worst films can be the most worthy of analysis, precisely because the blatant ideological shroud with which it attempts to cloak its inevitable contradiction. Furthermore, films often in the name of art, can miss the emancipatory potential of an encounter with the gaze of lack entirely, precisely because they do not lean into the complex narrative form. Reality Bites falls into an unusual category, a kind of filmic no-man's land. Although a traditional narrative film, it is written and composed strangely, perhaps because of the protagonists only dimly neurotic mode of desire. It is not her intention or lacking want that drives the narrative, but rather a series of whims, coincidences and missteps. The structuring, both script and architectural, have an uncanny quality to them, as if the challenge of handling unengaged characters within this overwrought mode was a challenge too impossible to bear. It's a diffident piece that never manages to lead us to this crux of the gaze of lack. The real permeates the piece because it must, precisely because the real is never corralled to this revelatory point of contradiction. It permeates the film in the all-too-sudden reveals, in Michael's unearned appearances, in out-of-place quips and elliptical edits. Rather than give us a clear insight into the workings of subjectivity, capital and the political, we are accidentally left with a film that is more tonally aligned with a horror film. I argue. The deliberately (laughs) disjointed continuity errors of The Shining strangely come to mind. That's all from me.
0: All right, Nina, you're up.
2: Amazing. Well, okay. I mean, as the Gen X representative um (laughs) (laughs) I suppose I want to say, first of all, reality bites, you know, in two ways, at least. Um, In the form of that it sucks, as in reality sucks. And to say that something bites means that it sort of like hurts you, I suppose. But also that reality is kind of um, real, you know, that it kicks in. And so the idea that, you know, you have to kind of... um, deal with what comes after childhood, I suppose. And I think this film is is a sort of very, very, in a way, superficial and kind of derivative attempt to deal with a certain crisis of meaning that follows the kind of boomer ideology, as it were, and the kind of generation for whom freedom is not just a kind of ideal but an actual um, structure of being in all of its horror, in fact, and the kind of lassitude and the sort of um, depression of a certain kind of pressure to be um, decisive. And so the indecision, I suppose, of the characters is something of a form of resistance, potentially against this um, temporal and zeitgeist um, positionality of this um, type of person. You know, and it's no um, coincidence that the actors are all ridiculously beautiful. You know, so you have Winona Ryder and um, what's his name?
0: Ethan Um,
2: Hawke. Ethan Hawke. And, you know... um, Jean um, Ruffalo, what her name is, you know, like they're very, very beautiful um, people in their generation, you know, playing average characters, you know, as if they are sort of um, symptoms of a type when in fact they are the type. And (laughs) I suppose, You know, one of the things that's sort of being disavowed in this generational narrative is that kind of um, determinism of things like beauty and background. So one of the discussions around status and money and inheritance and the kind of um, complexity of being from a particular class, like Winona Ryder's character doesn't want to inherit the BMW, for example, because it would mark her out as a member of the upper middle class. Um, as opposed to the lower middle class, really. And this is this film is about the relationship between the upper and the lower middle class and, and a kind of status game vis-a-vis um, the question of jobs, really. Um, and so I, the quote I picked out in particular was this one from Winona Ryder when she goes on a date with this guy who's, who's the Ben Stiller character who's this kind of, who's supposed to represent, let's say, the other side you know, the corporate, um, the man, you know, he's the opposition, even though he's basically them also, which is also made clear in the film. And she says, I'm making this documentary about my friends, but it's really about people who are trying to find their own identity without having any real role models or heroes or anything. And this is her sort of um dating pitch to the um, yuppie corporate character with whom she nevertheless wants a kind of meaningful relationship which is based on a kind of differentiation of consumerism. So when they're in the car and they discuss the relationship between the 33 ounce and the 42 ounce cup of um, soft drink, for example, and how this is really the only way they can differentiate the desire. <laughs> within a kind of corporate consumerist um, universe. And I suppose there's a kind of question of what it means to become an adult in the film. Um, Like, you can be an adult and you can have random sex and you can take drugs and you can drink and you can do all those things that are like markers of adulthood, but there are still things which are sort of um, beyond your reach. So for the women they make kind of like very dark jokes which are and the script is written by a woman by the way they make dark jokes about hysterectomies and abortion and sex and you know the price that women p- pay for casual sex and a lot of the film is about actually the kind of what it takes and what it costs to be a kind of um ironic character you know so the to be a kind of 70s rerun of a nineties like uh, casual sex person, you know it costs you a lot, basically, and all of the dispensable women you know that are kind of thrown away, and a lot of the backstories about divorce and AIDS and you know really the cost of a certain kind of sexual liberation um, and I suppose there's something maybe above all about this kind of um I don't know whether whether having a job or having status in this kind of debased world will save you from the inherent lossness <laughs> inherent loss that you suffered as a consequence of being born at a particular time, I suppose. And the the struggle is it's very interesting, like one of the phrases that's repeated, I suppose, is this like four hundred dollars. It's like, if you make $400 a week, you know, whatever you do, and somehow $400 from a Lacanian point of view is like, what is $400? (laughs) What costs $400 at this point? It's like, okay, I get this working at The Gap or for this TV studio or can I make it another way? And, yeah, it's whether that makes you a real human being or a complete person or not, I suppose. And yeah, that's it.
0: All right. Now I'm up. In Reality Bites, when a writer is stuck in a love triangle. Love triangles are a bit cringe, but they are an easy way of comparing different sets of values. Each man stands in for a life philosophy and writer must choose. On the one hand, there is Ethan Hawke. Hawke is a slacker who can't hold a job, but he's clever and straightforward. Then there's Ben Steller. Stiller is a yuppie with plenty of money. He's kind-hearted, but uncultured. Ryder wants to make films, and she's made a documentary about herself and her friends. She takes the documentary to Stiller, and Stiller immediately finds people to buy it. Hawk could never sell Ryder's film, but he's in her film, and he's the reason the film is interesting in the first place. Ultimately, Stiller's people cut the film to pieces and use it to sell pizza, at which point Ryder feels betrayed. She runs to Hawk. Hawk, of course, doesn't have any money or any prospects. The film ends with Ryder's dad leaving a voicemail, asking her to explain $900 worth of charges on his gas card. The issue with Hawk and Siller is that both profess to be real, but neither one really is. Hawk sees reality, but he doesn't live in it. He realizes that if he gets a regular job, he'll be a slave to the system and he'll waste his life, but he is unable to respond to this constructively. His solution is to never form the kinds of attachments that might require him to make real money. He tells Ryder he's never had sex with someone he loves before. He says he's not under any orders to make the world a better place. Hawk is paralyzed by reality and has fallen into a kind of life denial. Stiller lives in reality, but only because he doesn't really see it. Stiller does what he has to do to have financial stability. He claims his life isn't about the money, that he just wants to make Ryder happy. Stiller accepts work in the hope that he can use the money he earns to build a private paradise with Ryder. Hawke sees right through this. The child of divorced parents, he knows that the family is no security against the physical and psychological consequences of decades of pointless labor. But Stiller is trying to do something. And what is Hawke doing? The trouble is that action requires a level of faith in the possibility that action might go somewhere. And when you're as clever as Hawke is, you can critique any course of action to death. Eventually, critique itself becomes a form of retreat from the real. Any course of action involves building a theory of how reality works, and theories of reality necessarily simplify and distort it. The critical attitude spots those distortions. But to say that these distortions mean we can't affirm theories, and we can't act, is itself to build a theory of action. This view itself incorporates distortion. The truth is that when we act, we can never be sure what will happen. As we pointed out last week, we cannot abolish chance, not even by refusing to act at all. We can act based on what we provisionally take to be good and valuable, or we can wait for death. Stiller's character has rotten values, but at least he has an ethos. What happens when Ryder and Hawk's money runs out? What will they do? Boomers thought they could drop out. Generation X thought slacking was an option. Millennials like me think we know where that goes. It's not just to Loserville, though of course that idea motivates many people. It ends in a level of instability that is too much to take, a confrontation with the real that is too real, and an abyss that stares back at you and won't let go. Ultimately, the real has to be mediated through beliefs and values, which can't quite capture it. The best we can do is remember that our values are frames or lenses, that they're not complete, that we have to keep revising them and playing with them. We can't directly engage with the real, like Hawk tries to do, but we also can't get anywhere by having frames for the real that obscure too much, that plunge us too deeply into ideologies which serve the institutions that keep us down. We have to mediate between dying dogmas and empty nihilism. Nobody in this movie quite figures that out, but I got something out of watching them try. That's it for me.
1: (laughs) Guys, when did when did the gap become gap? When I was growing up, it was always just. Gap not the gap. But it was a massive thing in the It's like the, in the in the um social network, the Facebook movie where yeah. Sean Parker, Justin Timberlake goes
2: drab, the, the It was a massive thing in the nineties for some reason. Um actually it's parodied in the um David Lynch film. Inland Empire, mm-hmm. so the opening scene where they have the where he does this kind of bizarre advert, do you remember yeah, but it's a kind of horror advert for nothing um but it's it's very very close to lots of the gap adverts in the nineties um and i I suppose anyone who would have remembered those adverts would recognize that in the film um. And they had this kind of, um, I suppose, you remember Benetton and the AIDS Abbotts and the kind of universalism and the kind of like bizarre sort of, um, sort of faux empathetic um, thing that was sort of generated by these companies. Um, Also a bit like Live Aid and uh, that kind of um, end of history, uh, liberal democracy uh sort of fantasy like Nelson <laughs> Nelson Mandela and Bennington and, and like AIDS. I mean I thought about the AIDS habits a lot actually. I mean there's a scene in the film where um you know um the Jean Ruffalo character like has an HIV test and you know this is sort of portrayed as a kind of normal um thing in the nineties. And it's certainly true that the um, in the nineties, AIDS was presented as this kind of um insane health crisis. You know, if if you're in Britain, the UK adverts on TV with the like um the gravestones and like massive slabs, and you know the music was quite good. Coil and various bands did like parodies of these this music, and it was very very kind of like dark ambient. Um. And Derek Jarman esque sort of like, um, yeah, like Pet Shop Boys twisted sort of thing, Um, but it was basically like you're going to die if you have sex, (laughs) Um, and it was it was was extreme. It was very very extreme. It was like you know this is the end of the sexual revolution. You know it was like in the early nineties. It was like. If you have unprotected sex, um, it's a death sentence.
0: Well, that still goes on in red states in in America. When I was in high school, we went to a whole convocation where a man stood up in front of all of us and told us that if we had sex, we would get lesions, Mm -hmm. and through lesions there would be fluid transfer, and then we would contract HIV, and we'd get AIDS, and we'd die. Yeah. Uh, And uh, he he did another one a couple of years later about how we want our babies to be okay, about all of the different birth defects that can happen if you get pregnant and have babies. And the teenage pregnancy rate in the United States is about half of what it was in the early 90s -hmm. now.
2: Yeah. Also in Britain, it's massively reduced. I mean, when I was at school, people would have um, babies at 13 or 14. Like, it wasn't that weird. People left school to have children in the 90s. Um, and I I think that's definitely changed. I think the teenage pregnancy rate has dropped massively.
0: Yeah, there's much more awareness in the younger generations that if you make one false step, then your life will be ruined and, and you won't be able to do all of the things that you're supposed to be able to do.
2: Yeah, and it's a completely class thing because even when we were at school in the 90s, like um, when middle-class girls got pregnant, they would just have an abortion. And if that would also be arranged via the school, by the way. Like it was a kind of discussion between the school and the parents who would have an abortion and who wouldn't, you know. And it was completely class-based.
0: Yeah. You couldn't do that in the States. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have the, the public schools be involved in, in promoting abortion. Uh, that wouldn't work. It had to be abstinence only. That was the only approach that the schools could get away with.
1: You know, we were talking last week about Gen Z being so, um, having this sort of like ironic, uh, uns- comparatively extremely unserious compared to Generation uh, Generation Y, y you wine, know, or whatever people like to say, millennials. I was looking at, um, there's a, a boy I used to teach who's now a student at Columbia, and he was posting something about this group that he was part of, which was, um, celibacy promoted group in columbia and i was like gosh this is very strange and clicked on it they had this whole profile this whole online presence and it seemed like you know at first blush like this weird serious group of like cultish religious people and it's just a huge piss take complete piss take it's like one of the biggest like student groups at columbia or they're trying to be or something just this sort of group that kind of like does this weird ironic but it seems very serious um set of posts about celibacy but it's just a it's just a big joke
0: and yet statistically that statistically the zoomers are having less sex yes. than yes. anybody else even as they make fun of the values which you know, might have previously caused people to have sex or not have it uh, they're I think the main thing is, is the screen, the computer and the phone is a form of stimulus, which is competitive with going out and pursuing sex.
2: People had more sex in the 40s than the 60s. And I think the threat of death, I mean, if you grow up or if you're um, young and fertile in like war zones, you basically have more sex. Like people in the 90s in Yugoslavia had a lot more sex and partying. (laughs) No, I mean, it's like, I mean, this is not, a, I hope, a reactionary thing to say. It's like, no. if you are in a situation in which you can have, I don't know, if you have time and you can be bothered to come up with, like, identities that are, like, asexual or indifferentism or something, then it's like.
1: <laughs> I have to say, yeah, all these different flavours of the same thing. And it gets very confusing because, you know, someone will post a new thing you a, a new word and they are buy and you look it up. And it, it can be sort of like, It's very similar to the other one that is also a form of ace. I saw one a few years ago. It was like grey ace, like grey asexual, which is like, I believe, I could be wrong, like sometimes you're asexual and sometimes you're not. Or something, you know, it was grey as in it was like, but then...
2: It just means you want to have sex with aliens. I mean, that's okay. I mean, (laughs) everyone everyone loved the X-Files in the 90s. Who didn't want to have sex with aliens in the 90s? We took a lot of drugs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think historically, if you're paralyzed by the consequences of commitment, the consequences of pregnancy and marriage and so on, you know, in the 90s, the way you, you respond to that is you have casual sex, which doesn't involve commitment and doesn't involve burden. These days, I think for the Zoomers, the way you deal with that anxiety and paralysis is to just not have human contact. Yeah, to have all of your human contact mediated through screens. So you just don't have sex at all. You have the TikTok thirst traps, which don't don't quite get to sex, but which gesture at it while leaving you completely so separated from it.
1: Are the TikTok thirst traps those TikToks where girls who are well endowed where like very low cut tops and do those dances that are really bouncy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I see this sometimes. It comes up on Instagram. You're like, this is like, it's it, like, it has to be ironic, surely. So it's a thirst, a thirst trap. That just means like something that's like overtly sexual.
0: It's something that uh, arouses your awareness of the lack, it's something that makes you want something that you can't have.
1: Right.
2: Right. But the, I mean, but this seems very revealing and very sort of um interesting in a way. It's like so you you won't have sex with you know, and nor nor are you like providing any satisfaction or contact. It's like I have this um lack that you think you want, but you don't. But let's pretend you do, and so it's like I'll give you something that you don't want that I don't want to give you, like, <laughs> and it's purely, but it's purely visual. You know, it's like. No, like, like I don't think that most women necessarily understand, um, in a weird way, like what it is to be attractive, and this is part of the crisis of, um, what it is to be a woman in a way, a heterose- heterosexual woman. Like, you, you're constantly sort of thinking, like, oh, is this sort of sexy or not? And then it's like a joke, and then you're like a parody of like a joke of like. What it means to be sexy, right? And then the man is also like, uh, I'm not sure either.
0: <laughs> right, that you're making fun of of what is considered attractive, right. but also they but, do want to be complimented no, and, and but, have it but, liked and and yeah, exactly. Up but considered
2: feet. attractive by who? You know, it's like you know, sex is such a silly thing. It's such a like ridiculous game, and like the whole sort of like pretending to be sexy. So I sort of get it. I mean, it's like a hyper addiction to a kind of visual form, which is like the other of the other thinks that this is what sexiness is. But you're, you're right, there because
1: it's like also there's there's nothing beyond the kind of the visual, like the representation of it. So even though we can ironically, we can get to the other side and be like, OK, those archaic forms of, you know, the blonde bombshell and the and the Ken doll or the Don Draper or whatever. But it's like, so, but there's no, there's no, nothing on the other side of it either. <laughs> so you just end up sort of like... Play, yeah, do, do, having a piss-take version of the same kind of thing because it's like se- this is the thing as well with you know this sort of like uh, obsession with um you know under our current form of things with like specifying basically what you find sexually attractive you know as an identity but the obviously the thing is it's like you can, you can find anything attractive you can have like a fetish with a table like you know like it's like sex isn't like some biological fact that you're born with it's, it's it's a construct itself so it's like yeah there's trying to like really really codify but any anytime you try to codify like it, it slips out sideways so you have the plethora like the plethorization or that you know more and more and more of these categories asexual gray ace polyamorous blah di da dee, da but then also in terms of just like that representation question of like what's sexy like we it's like a slippery it's like a it's like a um a wet, Piece of soap that <laughs> like it just slips away. There's no like thing to deal with.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, in any case, politics shouldn't shouldn't be based on this kind of like infinitely disappearing bar of soap. No, absolutely, absolutely, it <laughs> shouldn't. It shouldn't. So, like no. a politics based on desire is like a disaster, and I think we're sort of cruising for like a you know decadent last days of empire situation basically in which people are competing for their desire to be represented politically mm-hmm. um, which is like a tragedy and a nightmare for everyone Absolutely. Uh, and if the
0: narrative Absolutely. that all desire is fine no desire needs to be reined in yeah. then it just becomes a mad competition among urges
2: exactly cool. and, Yeah. no and like men should like step up and like um, take other men in hand and be like dude not okay <laughs> i mean uh, this atomization of desire is is i mean uh, suffered basically by lots of people and you know women women are basically i think punished for being a woman you know as an example of their own sex whereas men don't necessarily have to suffer this they're not necessarily treated as like an exemplar, or you know um as a representation of their own sex. And I sometimes wish they were. Like, I wish men would be like, oh yes, I'm a man. These other men are men. And they're doing terrible things.
1: <laughs> I, I think this is like the the real, um, what, what annoys me most in quote-unquote like Lacanian film theory. I think it like completely deviates from Lacan. And there's sort of like a lot of the gender stuff that came out or, <clears throat> of secondary readings of Freud and Lacan where because they don't identify women as lacking also they they sort of like participate in this idea and like put forward this idea that the man is the castrated lacking whatever and then the woman is the decoration you know that the woman is some and i think like the real feminist question is to return to this idea that like women are also part of the lacking all you know not it's not like a gender like there's there's something that goes beyond that gender question and that yeah like if women are going to be like representative of their whole gender than like yeah. obviously the same thing goes for the
2: man definitely
0: well i think that the the thing that is really nice and so far as there is anything that's really nice about being a white guy a straight white guy a straight cis white guy uh, add as many terms as you want
1: <laughs> is that
0: you don't have to think of yourself as an example of a group exactly. that's the nice thing about it now people want to take this away from us <laughs> and we don't want this taken away from us. But we are very happy to to entertain the possibility that other people could also not be an example of a group.
2: Exactly. Yes. And pri- privilege is an expansion of what that is. It's is. I, I'm on the side of an expansive um, uh, definition of privilege. Privilege used to mean everyone having the same amount of access to nice things, not um, taking things away from people that we think we don't like. So I'm so I'm in favor of of a purely positive politics in which everyone um you know has access to all of the nice things that we want.
0: Not well we not- we used to have words for that, right? We called them rights, you know, that you have a right as a person or as a citizen or as a human being, however you want to classify it, you know, to certain things, just qua being human. And that the privileged discourse in framing these things is something that we shouldn't have. It puts the the white man on the defensive and makes him feel that somebody's trying to take something from him. And then he goes into those discussion groups online to find out who it is who's trying to take this thing from him and who the, the the people are who are out to get him. And it leads to this kind of fearful defensive crouch thing. Uh, I think it's, it's much easier to just make the argument that, we shouldn't we shouldn't be treating people as examples of groups. The the trouble is that a lot of the people who ha- have been routinely, repeatedly throughout their lives treated as examples of groups have had to identify with the group yeah. as a defense mechanism against the pain of having been treated as an example of a group to actually confront the reality. You've been treated as an example of something that isn't you and that you've been crunched down into this archetype. That isn't you is extremely painful. And I think it's a it's a reasonable response for people to say, okay, well, I am that thing. You know, if you're put in a role to really deal with the fact that the role doesn't fit you is quite hard. If you can reify the role and, and make yourself believe in the role, it's easier to get along. That's why so many people identify with their jobs, because they can't really get out of having to work a job. They can't really get out of having to have an economic role. So they lean into it and say, okay, this is what I am, and this is the ethos of this job, and, and all of that. The same thing is happening with groups. And because of this, there's a lot of resistance on the part of these disadvantaged groups to embrace the principal thing which they don't have, which is to not be an example of a group.
2: Yeah. No, correct. I think strategic essentialism has played like an enormously important role, like for women, for people of colour, for like anti-colonial struggles, like nationalism, you know, against violent colonial nationalism. Like, of course, right? Like it's kind of, you know, it's like the Eminem song, like I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't when then why would you say I am right? It's like you know that kind of st- no, no, seriously, it's a very psychoanalytically important point, like you know if somebody constantly says "You are this, it's like you and you say, "Okay, I am that, right, yeah,, but, yeah, no, absolutely. but it's like but but like. You know, it's me and like against, or it's us against you. Like, stop, t- stop making it a negative thing. And yeah, and this is—I mean, the thing is, that
1: this is where all of this woke ideology is completely conservative and like of the old, the old kind. You know, the colonial kind of kind. And yeah, it's really about sort of of, of you know, you 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 aren't identical with yourself. A does not equal A, and that's like a great psychoanalytic point. And this is why psychoanalysis is not, you know, like the, the staid upper middle class, you know, quote unquote, white technology of subjectivity. It's like, it's something that can help everybody access the universal. And this is what like really riles me about so much of the secondary or even tertiary theorization around psychoanalytic thinkers, especially Freud and Lacan, because they like it's weaponizing something that is precisely universal to confirm these identity questions when actually and we, I think we've talked about it before as well it's like using old ideas to deal with our present problems like just retreating like people retreating into the gen uh, like the, the identity that they're assigned you know as you say I am whatever you say I am but like retreating into old ways of or old paradigms of analyzing like what the what our current political system really is.
0: Yeah, we've gotten into a kind of vicious loop where the more people feel that they are examples of a group, the more they identify with the group as a defensive mechanism. Identifying with that group causes them to see the people who are making them feel that way as an other in an other group. And then in treating those people, the straight cis white men as in a group and as examples of a group, they threaten that the principal thing that those white men like about that group and that causes them to throw the stereotypes back, and so we, we're we're in this thing where we keep escalating, treating each other as examples of groups, treating each other less and less as people, and it's it's become a spiraling negation of the human.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is why, in a, in a way, we need to defend things like character or eccentricity or idiosyncrasy, or I don't know, a certain kind of contingency or randomness. You know, it's like when we are friends with someone or we love someone, we love them for their sort of, like, flaw or their, <laughs> you know, their specificity. We don't love them because they are, like, number one, three, two of a group, you know. And so, I mean, like, in if you read Zamiatin's We, like, the thing that destroys the homogenous society is love, you know. And it's it's the... Um, it's the crack in the system basically is like the when you recognize some idiosyncrasy actually a negativity in the other like it's something that the other person can't do and you love them for that reason
1: but like talking about like the crack you know and, and the idea that like the crack is where the truth is and where the potential emancipatory potential is and like obviously part of the reason why I mean like to be sort of like I don't know a bit contrarian about it like i actually think like woke ideology provides a great um, emancipatory potential precisely like i think the argument i made about the most ideological films the film because of the way that it's structured like inevitably exposes a, a, a crack a contradiction and you can either paper that over with ideology or like integrate that within the very like artifice of the film itself and so ideological films can be like great to analyze you know like zizek obviously always talks about titanic and things like that so woke ideology because precisely because it exposes these contradictions of the things like this the actual individual versus these identity groups like it can provide us and part of the reason why i go on about it so much is because it's like i actually think that it inadvertently provides us like, with this great understanding of what's going on today and i think the plus of the lgbtqia to S, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Zizek has made this point, obviously, is really like the crux.
0: Yeah, yeah. Though I, I do think that it's not the first time that we've had a really, really, really rigid, very obvious dogma that is kind of driving the ideological bus. And that the tendency is is for these dogmas to produce forms of rebellion, but for those forms of rebellion to not, Go somewhere emancipatory, but to instead be periods of deconstruction which result in reconstruction but this is and ultimately you, strengthen the thing.
1: You never do deconstruction. Well, you could do deconstruction, but it's all about contradiction itself. It's not about like breaking it down and building it back up or riling against it. It's understanding where the contradiction arises from and what the contradiction is saying about the thing itself. But yes doing and this is the problem with the potentially the reality bites kids is that they still have the umbilical relationship
2: but actually i i mean in defense of the kind of gen x suspended position that actually if everybody was just a bit like well we don't know for the entirety of their lives then nothing bad would happen and i think honestly i really do think that this is the kind of moral gesture of that entire of our generation which is to say something like I don't know if this is the right thing to do so let's not do it
1: no absolutely I mean I think this living into the question and but I guess the, the thing is and I know that like Hegel makes this point it's like almost you have to take this like leap of faith and you have to like take an action but an
2: action with the humility with the humility of not knowing but But to to be an entire generation that basically says, look, um, we're not really convinced about what our parents are doing and they haven't given us any moral code whatsoever and we don't have our own. And, you know, a lot of the film is about, like, we're just sort of left a bit bereft. Like, okay, they may have given us um, the BMW, but they haven't given us any um, way of understanding how we should live our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And this is Mm -hmm. both freeing and also terrifying, And we don't really know what to do other than sort of um, be a bit jokey and smoke cigarettes and be a bit ironic and we don't even know what irony means and let's sort of film each other. And a lot of that film is very interesting about the question of technology. I mean, early technology, really, compared to where we are now. Like the idea of filming your friends. Like, this is Mm -hmm. really funny. You know, like the idea that you need to be a kind of semi-professional documentary maker with a relationship to a kind of TV company. I mean in the age of Instagram, like, this is, like, hilarious, you know, and so I think, you know, that kind of suspended, I mean, I I do think there's a kind of, like, almost Buddhist or a kind of um, um, acceptance sort of relationship to being as such, which is just, like, just, like, don't do anything, like, just stay as still as you possibly can. And you know that will probably be slightly better than going on with things.
0: Yeah, the thing is that that attitude is not because that attitude results in doing nothing. Yeah, the people who have that attitude necessarily die out.
2: But but that's okay too. I mean, what's right. So but good then about- that means
0: there's always another group of people who didn't get that attitude, and those are the people who continue, and so but, it meh. continues. But without the, the people who. <laughs> are are more critical in their attitude to things because those people don't stay with us we just end up back where we started
2: well maybe i i don't know i mean it's it's an interesting question about um reproduction and culture and you know who i don't know i mean it you know philosophers generally don't reproduce right historically like if you're a philosopher you don't have children basically you think about it and you're like Mm. I thought it through <laughs> and <laughs> no no but honestly yeah, but, you know, but I think no, no actual philosopher has children yeah. I'm not saying like academic philosophers don't have children. you know like I'm, I'm generalising but Nietzsche makes the same joke and the point it's like um, and I think at a certain level where you're like well there's humanity and humanity reproduces and you're like well it doesn't have anything to do with me you know like you can you can be rationally distanced from this question actually. And I think Gen X were the were the generation, somehow, who collectively did that, actually. They were Shop and Harry and, <laughs> Shop and, Harry and generation. Because so, I actually
1: think... I do think that, like, I, I'm very sympathetic to, like, punk, and I am very sympathetic to grunge and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, the way it's depicted in the film is a specific set of people, and as you say, you know, it's, like, upper-middle-class versus... Well, also, I mean, the lower-middle-class, but also the upper-middle-class aesthetic, like, obviously the higher you get up on the rung of whatever the the you know there's obviously the, the the sort of like aristocratic bohemian type you know that you are able to do that you know there's that sort of question as well but so how how though I, th- I think they are different that kind of like that as you say this kind of more um because I don't want to use the word skeptical because I'm going to say compare it to skeptical but like what is the difference you think between that attitude that you're describing it and say the sceptic, or the quietest? Or is there any difference?
2: Well, I mean, not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, lots of the words in the 90s, it's like, it, you're against the inauthentic, you're against selling out, you know, it's like, the worst thing in the world would be to kind of, um yeah, I don't know, give up on authenticity, mm-hmm. whether you're a musician or a writer or something like that. So there was still this idea of like, something on the side of um the real I suppose because I guess the thing is it's like I find that the authentic is not
1: in necessarily like um an aesthetic set of values but rather in a relationship to lack so it's not necessarily to do with um the mean obviously the means by which you make something and how you finance something and stuff like that like has a big impact obviously but the question is are you challenging you know the the um the attempt to paper over the lack by just saying like it's all gonna be fine if we do this or it's all gonna be fine if we stay within the system. But mm-hmm. rather just exposing, carrying on like um, I don't know how I will go on and yet I go on, you know, the Beckett thing. But yeah. knowing that like you're never gonna be able to overcome
2: lack. I think the 90s thing was like once you go corporate, you can't go back, basically. Mm-hmm. So it was like that was the worst thing you could do, was to sell out. Because basically then you'd be on the other side, whatever the other side was.
0: Yeah, I think that you know, it's making me think of, of Fukuyama's end of history, mm-hmm. right? At the end of history being something which seems at once inescapable, but also intolerable, right? We can't really imagine not really affirming anything and not really believing in anything and not really doing anything at scale. Individuals can do that. Individuals can can drop out and not reproduce uh, but then they get old and they die and and the people who don't do that are still you know, what what becomes of them uh yeah like the difference between theravada buddhism and mahayana right where the theravada buddhist individually in theravada was more dominant in india goes off into the woods by themselves lives a hermit lifestyle uh, and and just has does nothing uh and doesn 't reproduce and and dies and goes away, and at that point no longer generates karma because yeah. their life had no consequence exactly right, and on the other side, the Mahayana tradition, which emerges after Buddhism interacts with Greek philosophy and then goes to China and interacts with Confucianism and taoism and and a Chinese political theory, which is much more pragmatic and 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 you got to do something and, and you have to do something in the world. It turns into about being the bodhisattva and being the source of loving kindness and and uh, looking deeply into what's going on and so that when you act, you're acting in a way which is based on on looking deeply and continuing to look deeply, kind of more influenced by I think you know, contemplation as it emerges from Plato, where it's something that we are constantly trying to return to to get back to the one from which we emanate these moments of of unity with the one, which then enable us to act but the action since it moves us away from the one forces us to return to the contemplation so that we don't get too far alienated from it a kind of oscillating
2: yeah i mean beauty therefore is just like a you know a kind of reminder of anamnesis right so the beauty of the individual so like any individual dialogue or relation is hopefully a pathway to the you know the form right so you don't get hung up on the individual so you don't fall in love, <laughs> for example. I mean, if you do, you're not in love with the person.
0: Right. But it's, it's because even if you, you don't you know, get hung up on the individual as the form, because you're still going out and, and acting, because you have to go back into the cave in this theory, yeah. you, you still have to do something in your life. You have to act on the basis of the contemplation even though, of course, you will return to the contemplation and you won't permanently. I think the thing that's really bad about selling out and going corporate is that once you go corporate, you never have time to contemplate ever again.
2: Yeah. So it's it, a kind of exactly. permanent
0: divorce from contemplation. Yeah,
2: but can I say, you know, early Google like was very Gen X in this way. Like Google's original slogan was like, don't be evil or something like this. Like it was a totally Gen X idea. Like they were like, okay, yeah, we're going to go down this route, but like we've got these constraints on our behaviour. Which are to do with not selling out, even though we're the like the largest thing in the world, right? Do you know what I mean? Companies
0: want we want to believe, because we live in this society, that it's possible for good things to happen even with all of the bad elements of how the society is constructed. And companies take advantage of the fact that we want to believe that there's some way of reconciling the artificial agent of the corporation with morality. And so they present themselves to us in a way which appears to reconcile. But the reconciliation, of course, can't work because the fundamental structure of the thing, the market system that it operates in, makes it impossible for it to actually affirm values in any way other than performatively for the purposes of getting people to support the growth of the company. And I think about what has recently been going on with all these companies appropriating the woke discourse Mm -hmm. and appropriating environmental signaling. And I think it's it's similar. It's really the same thing as appropriating don't be evil. It's just that because millennials have a more positive, uh, not necessarily good, but more substantive, dogmatic uh, set of ways of thinking about what it means to be moral than Gen X does, the company picks up on that and, and runs with that instead. But it really has functionally the same purpose, which is to grab an aesthetic from the moralizing part of the generation mm-hmm. and use it to sell uh, really what what the yuppie the yuppies take the hippie stuff and use the yes. hippie stuff to sell to the hipster yeah that's what they do
1: yeah because yeah i think that's like 68 oh, the 60s was like the first real clear example of the sexual revolution and then obviously it just it just permeates obviously now sex sells you know it's just it, instead of like anything that doesn't address the primary contradiction which is surplus value you know like will just always be sold back to us in a firm of in a form of like um legitimation mechanism of the market so obviously like the the tech stuff it's all like you know this is all for you know, i've been watching silicon valley i don't know if you've seen it's it like such a funny sitcom but it's always about you know this it's about the the good of humanity and moving humanity forward or you know obviously woke stuff is about you know uh egalitarian well like what the equity and representation and stuff like that but like none of these things challenge or even get remotely close to what the real crux of our our system is, and obviously, you know, the idea of capitalist realism and like the the permeation of the system is just because, like, out of any form of uh, societal organization that we've ever had, capitalism is where the contradiction is furthest pushed down. Obviously, I mean, if we like follow Hegel, you know, and it's I think I, th- th- I think part
0: of it is that it's not being sold to us per se, right? So if if you take my little simplistic model of there being three groups: the yuppie, the hipster, and the hippie. Right? The hippie generates the forms of rebellion. The yuppie sells the forms of rebellion, but not to the hippie who will never believe anything the yuppie says, yeah, that's but true. to the hipster who is trying to affect a life in which they are able to incorporate these values and climb the ladder or occupy a place on the ladder that is stable right? The hipster wants the stability of of living like a yuppie with the value satisfaction of living like a hippie and is trying to have both in the same life and therefore is trying to occupy this contradiction. Therefore, the hipster is eminently exploitable by the yuppie because the hipster wants something that the hipster can't have. Whereas the hippie is content with not having And the yuppie is content with playing the game because the yuppie buys it and drinks the Kool-Aid.
1: I think also this is a question of like, this is where the union comes in like so well. And obviously, like hilariously now, unionism has morphed and we can see like, obviously you see these viral videos about DSA type things where it's like clicking your fingers and doing things that are not really to do with unions. But like, basically in terms of like, obviously if we look at these characters in the film, you know, it's like, oh shit, life's so shit we can't escape it it's just shit and I think this is this is the thing where I think it is actually you know really insightful that gen x position because they're like correct like you can't escape it but it still doesn't address surplus value which is basically you're you're never going to be paid for your your worth but rather like so it's sort of like taking that insight and what do you do with it which I think like unions do something you know (laughs) But like, I don't know, but I don't know if there's a solution or anything. What
0: well, what happens is, so what happens is if it's possible to live as a hippie and get away with it, that has to be eliminated.
2: Yeah. Because yeah. if it's
0: possible to live as a hippie and actually get away with it, then of course, lots of people will do that. But
2: this is, I mean, the law in the UK against nomadism, against travelers, against, you know, the criminal justice bill in the early 90s, against rave. you know, I've done a lot of work on this. It was absolutely against this. It was, it was, it was a reenactment of the anti enclosures laws. Basically, it was like saying, "You cannot but be um, tied to a name and a place." You know. Mm -hmm.
0: Right, and so if you try to not be, you get subjected to so much torment. Yes, I mean extreme, extreme levels
2: of um, uh, state lockdown persecution. You know, like you cannot simply be a person who wanders about and has a nice time.
0: Right. And so Theravada is rested on the premise that there is some kind of possibility of withdrawing into a Buddhist lifestyle, whether that's in a monastery or as a hermit in the in the woods, that there's some kind of possible way of withdrawing and not not uh, being without the means of subsistence. As we take more and more of that away, neoliberalism is really a process of eradicating all alternatives. Uh, People are pushed into the hipster position. And really, I think what the millennial generation is, is it's the first generation that is really wholesale, totally pushed into the hipster position of there really being no alternative, of it really being the case that you will be subjected to endless torment. Even if you're relatively well off, your parents, the adults, the boomers will subject you to an endless, uh, uh, endless attacks on your self-esteem and, and self-concept if you don't play the game mm-hmm. and so you are put in a situation where the only way you can feel psychologically okay and, and i think with gen x there was some awareness that it was becoming like that in this movie it's harder to get a job it's harder to get mm-hmm. the 400 dollars. it's not easy to do those things but you know you hustle and yeah. right but the thing is increasingly you can't even do that increasingly if you have that level of of job uh,
2: it's still a human question in this film Right, it's still a question of yeah. like being who you are and who you know, and like you just have to kind of wake up and you know just like pick yourself up and you can get that job. Right? It still yeah. Has the that- slacker
0: option is difficult but feasible. Yeah. Right. Whereas if you go back to the '60s, the slacker option is not even all that difficult. No. Right. It's very easy to do in the '60s. Yes, yeah, so you
1: can live in a loft now, in bouncing, New York,
0: just bouncing from job to job, taking whatever job that happens yeah. to come by. Right. But now, now you really can't do that. Now, if you have this level of evidence of non-commitment to a particular job in your record, Mm -hmm. you just can't get anything. And you're just kind of on the blacklist of people who don't really exist.
1: It it is also like, this is also super interesting (laughs) because the self-consciousness section of phenomenology of spirit does like deal with this question like so well, going from like, skeptic to sinner. I don't know if it's called sinner we use the word sinner between us and I don't know if, like what the actual term that they use is, but like, basically the question there is about, um, recognition, desire for recognition and how one operates in terms of subjectivity in relation to the other and one requires a lacking other to be able to recognize your own subjectivity in the other. So, you know, you have the savage and the master slave, each one, it doesn't work and it tries to resolve itself in a different way. And so you go from the skeptic position, which is obviously the withdrawal position, um, to the sinner and the sinner is sort of like turns this like impossibility into sort of like a form of religion and then you get the sort of mediators between like sort of like the monks and priests that mediate your sin with like a, a god so I don't know whether like you know people turn the kind of skept- well maybe I mean like environmentalism and everything like that you know the way the quality that that has sometimes and as you said like Benjamin with the corporatization of that I find like, green products, like, it's absolutely hilarious. If you go to Marks and Spencers order for at the moment, the new range is the plant-based, and it's just, like, the perfect, the perfect capitalist product, you know, a new, a new frontier to mine, how to make, turn vegetables into bacon, you know, um, yeah, it's all uh, you, you see where it's
0: going in this film with that the. So there are two female characters. There's Winona Ryder and the other one whose name I can't quite remember. Sean right?
2: Greflo. Oh yeah, yeah. The- Vicky. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Vicky. She's also the, very attractive,
1: as you said, Nina. They're all attractive. <laughs> they
2: all
0: are. See, because Winona Ryder is professional class, is it mm-hmm. comes from a professional class family. Winona Ryder can just charge a bunch of stuff to the gas card mm-hmm. and end the film just charging a bunch of money to the parents, right? The the other girl, she Vicky, can't be the main character in this movie because Vicky doesn't have that option. So Vicky doesn't have the choice. Vicky is more in the position of the millennial where Vicky, because Vicky can have a job at the Gap, where Vicky is treated with some modicum of respect as being semi-adequate or, or capable or even mm-hmm. quite capable at that job. Uh, that becomes the only way that Vicky has any kind of, of center. Yeah. And And there's no alternative to it. And so I think that the trouble is that there's this group of people for whom psychologically there is no hippie option. Mm -hmm. The hippie option is a theoretical option for people from a more advanced class background who have more access to parent resources. Uh, But for a lot of people, there is really no hippie option. And the closest those people can get is the hipster lifestyle. Well, it's interesting that
2: Vicky's obsessed with the 70s, not the 60s. You know, she, her fantasy and all of her outfits, her vintage clothes and her chic record, you know, everything is from the 70s, not the 60s.
0: Yeah.
2: It's
1: interesting as well. Like, I, I think this is where just the way you're delineating like this kind of like what, what Winona Ryder's character is doing. Like, I think this is where the film kind of like slips a bit in terms of like the narrative, because each time you create a film in the filmic form, it like presents a challenge because whatever you're trying to say you have to manipulate this form in a certain way to shape it to kind of lead you to this crux, which is like basically the point where fantasy is undercut, which is like, you know, the drawing back the curtain of the Wizard of Oz or whatever, or you paper that over with ideology. But like, so I, I think this weird romantic comedy, like I can see where they've done it because obviously that that gives a sort of question at the start of the film, like who is she going to go out with? And sort of like a journey of like oscillating between the two. But like having this character that like is a bit sort of like, ooh, it's really difficult to create a compelling forward-moving story out of that. It's really difficult to like corral that into like an actual narrative. And maybe you know Vicky would have been like a more interesting main character. And yeah, if we're talking about the questions that we're talking about, but it the wouldn't be a choice. Of, well, no, well, exactly though. But there's still the challenge where you're, you're you because it's not just about choice. Actually, it's about it's about a question of wanting something and then having a very difficult set of circumstances that you you kind of ride against to get to that point. And then you're under, I think the best films, like, undercut that very wanting in the first place. But, like, she would maybe have been a more interesting character or, like, a comparison between the two where, yeah, you show. Do you see what I mean? Because it's just this sort of, like, floating thing. It's kind of difficult to, like...
0: Right. From the point of view of ideology, it's much better to have Winona Ryder be the main character, because Winona Ryder suggests that you are making a value choice when you decide where you fit here. But for most people, it's not a value choice. It's a choice that's being made under the threat of a nebulous coercion that isn't even reducible to particular people and is therefore just a big terror, right? And, And for that reason... Vicky can't be the main character because that would be too real for this film. Yeah, Winona Ryder can be the main character because she's choosing whether to have a yuppie guy pay for her or to have her parents pay for her. But it doesn't matter if she can make
2: or, it, or to not be paid for at all. I suppose, which would be the other yeah. option. Yeah,
0: right. But even in her case, the not be the not be paid for at all option is, yeah, you know, sitting there in front of the television, getting more and more miserable until you spend an ungodly amount of money on phones and if she didn't have on, on calling people and if she didn't have people around her to tell her to stop that, mm. she would have called people on the phone until she was destitute and ended up on the street.
1: Because the thing is if Vicky was the main character, you would either have an emancipatory film that really questions these like class questions, or you would have something like, She's plucked from obscurity, she is the great genius of her age, and anybody can do this. If they want to do this, they could do like her and become the manager of the gap and then the sort of buildings romance thing, get to this goal. So you would have to also, if, yeah, you'd either do an emancipatory film with her or an ideological film.
2: What is she writing down in her notebook, you know, in the early bit of the film? What is that? How how many people she slept with,
1: right? Is that it? And then she, like, yeah, and then she, like, checks through who might have given her AIDS if she was to have got AIDS.
2: Okay. I didn't get the whole name book thing.
1: <laughs> but I guess it's expressive as, you know, you saying, like, the reality of, like, this free love or having sex with whoever mm-hmm. you want. You know, I guess it's sort of like... The the crazy thing is, is the screenwriter was 20 years old, Mm. which, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. But yes.
2: Okay. Should we stop there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, guys, I think we've hit the hour. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go and do the B side of the podcast now, which is on Patreon. So thanks a ton, guys. And we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Bye.